We've read Psalm 51, 1 to 4 in verse 7. In Luke chapter 15, verse 18, there is found there the story of one whom we have come to call the prodigal son. It is really one of three aspects of the same story, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And as he comes to face his own need, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Such confession is very rare in the Bible. It surprised me when I discovered that only 13 times in the entire Bible does the statement, I have sinned, or a similar acknowledgement of personal guilt and responsibility occur. Only 13 times in the Bible. Three of those times it was insincere, said without meaning it. Three of those times it was stated impersonally with no sense of personal guilt. Five times the sinner confessed when his guilt trapped him, confessing was unavoidable and there was nothing else for him to do. Among these was the man Achan. We read about him in the book of Joshua. He brought judgment on the whole people of God because of his sin. And when he was trapped and called out and pointed out unmistakably, he acknowledged his guilt. There was Saul the king who sinned by usurping the place of the priest and offering sacrifice to God. And when Samuel faced him squarely with it, he admitted it, but only because he was trapped. There was Judas Iscariot who said with remorse, but without repentance, I have betrayed innocent blood. And of these 13 occasions, three were insincere, three impersonal, five with when the sinner was trapped, only twice in the Bible, only two times, is there sincere and honest confession of sin followed by the positive fruits of repentance. Those two times are, first of all, David the king. We read the prayer he wrote after his guilt was revealed to him in Psalm 51. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David was idle. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. We've heard the cliche, but it was true in David's life. David had almost gotten himself killed in battle. And his troops had said to him, his generals, David, you're the most important man in the nation to us, and no more will you go forth to battle. You stay home and administer the country's business and be safe, and we will fight the battles. And so David was in the palace with nothing to do, and rather than his usual custom of meditation and prayer, he was gazing about and his eyes fell on a beautiful woman whom he desired. He had illicit relationship with her. And then when their sin caught them, he arranged the death of her husband and took her as his wife. Nathan the prophet came to David and he said, David, there is a man in the kingdom who is very wealthy. He has flocks. He has many possessions, and he had a guest come to his house. 
And rather than taking of his own flocks to feed his guest, he went next door and took the one little sheep that his neighbor owned and slew it. And David's face flushed with anger. He became livid and he said, Where is the man? He shall die. Nathan the prophet pointed that bony finger in the face of the king and said, Thou art the man. And then David said in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto him, The Lord also has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. I read Luke 15, 18, the story of the prodigal son who, recognizing his own responsibility, did not try to sneak back home sheepishly and take up where he had left off and work his way back into the favor of his father, but rather he went boldly home to say to his father, I have sinned. And only David and the prodigal in all of Scripture are those who sincerely and honestly confess to God. I would say to you that these two men represent the best of humanity because every man, every woman, boy and girl, every biblical character, every one of us needs to go boldly and honestly to God and confess personal sin and personal guilt and responsibility for our own lives. To say honestly to God, I have sinned, is the hardest thing in the world to say sincerely. We will do anything before we squarely face our sin and our guilt. These two men stand alone in the Word of God as the only ones who honestly confessed. What I desire to see happen in our lives today is that we would examine these men and that we would be like them and receive as they did restoration, forgiveness, cleansing, a filling with Him, and a new life in Christ. Notice, first of all, their example. Their example is something that we ought to follow, and their example was this. They did not resort to alibi. They did not resort to alibi. They did not mimic Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, there began a cycle that continues to the moment in which we live. The serpent came to Eve and beguiled her. He tricked her. He lied to her. Rather than believing God, she believed a lie and she sinned. Her sin was compounded as her husband knowingly, without being tricked, joined in her sin. And later in that day, God came physically to be with them as He always did, and they were hidden from Him. God knew that they had sinned. They admitted it. And God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Well, first of all, He said to Adam, for his was the real responsibility. What have you done? And Adam did what husbands have been doing since the beginning of time. He said, Lord, that woman... It's all her fault. Well, sometimes it is. I mean, you know, you ladies understand that. Sometimes it's not. And so the Lord said, okay, woman, what about it? And she said, that snake, he did it. And ever since then, when we're guilty, 
We've been pointing the finger at somebody else. I want to say this free, folks. This doesn't have anything to do with the message. It has a great deal to do with our lives. You are just as guilty as the darkest sin whenever you find yourself pointing a finger at somebody else. Romans chapter 2 doesn't say maybe. It says as a matter of fact that when you condemn others, it's because you yourself are guilty and you can't handle your own guilt. And I want to tell you this morning that it doesn't matter whether your accusations and your judgments are correct or not. You're not the judge. God is the judge. And whether you are accurate in what you say or not, when you judge and accuse and bicker and complain and murmur, it is sin. Every place in the Bible, the word accuse, accusation, accused, accuser, any form of that word occurs, it is sin. The word critical, criticized, criticism, no form of those words occur anywhere in the Bible even one time. Do you not believe that if God authorized it, it would show up in the Scriptures somewhere? But you know, the whole matter is really settled by the fact that you're not the judge. God's the judge. And when you hear it at home, on the phone, on the street, in the corridor, in the lobby, in the classroom, I want you to stand up with the authority of God's Word behind you and say, that's sin, folks, let's not do it anymore. Adam and Eve resorted to alibi. David and the prodigal son did not. Adam and Eve infected our spiritual bloodstream. We're as guilty as they are, and we try to excuse ourselves for our own sins just as often as they did by pointing the finger at somebody else. We live in a day of intellectual and psychological enlightenment. And there has been bred in our society a cult of irresponsibility. There's always a way to explain away personal responsibility. I remember several years ago, Dennis the Menace. I know a few of them. I used to be one. We've got a few of them running around here. And here's Dennis with a hammer in his hand standing over a smashed piano. And he says to his mother, I'm a neurotic. Now, the joke is an adult excuse for sin in the, child, in the mouth of a child. I'm a neurotic. In 1973, one man was captured having been involved in a shootout where he killed two of his friends. It came to light that that man was one of three who had offered housing there and food there in that Gulf Coast area to run away young people. And on the Gulf Coast is one of the meccas in the country for runaways. Over that three-year period, they had molested and abused and murdered over 30 teenagers. And then they got into a fight and one of them killed the other two that had done all of that. And the man's lawyer said to the press, the poor boy is sick and he needs a rest cure in the hospital. I recall when a little nurse wormed her way out from under a bed and cried for help and was discovered in her apartment in Chicago with eight of her slain companions. She identified the assailant and Richard Speck lives today recuperating from his temporary insanity. More sin today is blamed on uh, 
emotional problems than used to be blamed on Satan himself. It's not their fault. We say they're frustrated, neurotic, temporarily insane. Give them a little rest cure. After all, we want to be redemptive. And God is redemptive. But let us not escape personal responsibility. Why can we not say when violent crime occurs that somebody is guilty? Why can we not say that all sin is insanity? All of us are in the same boat. All sin, public or private, great or small, all of it is insanity. Why can we not on our own behalf just say that we have sinned? We blame sin on complexes rather than on personal responsibility. So I want you to notice the example of David in the prodigal son. They did not resort to alibi. Guilt is not a complex. Guilt is a divinely given aid and encouragement to repentance. We need guilt, for guilt stirs our soul and shows us our need of God. Today many, even many who call themselves Christians, try to escape the matter of personal guilt. Have you ever noticed how nothing is ever anybody's fault? If uh, I fail, either on the job or in school, it's because uh, somebody didn't like me or I didn't get the breaks. If I get a promotion, though, I work for it. Somebody beats me at something and it's because the ball didn't bounce right or I didn't have a fair chance. If I fail, it's because I didn't know the right people, didn't have the right opportunities or education or a thousand other excuses, but never because I have sinned, because I failed, because I blew it, because I was out of God's will, because I was not good enough. Many people who are religious have never faced the reality of their own personal guilt and sin and cried out to God as these two we have studied today did. These two exercised one of the most precious gifts that God has given to us. That gift is the gift of self-examination. The gift of self-examination. Folks, God gave that to us. Not in order that we might suffer from self-inflicted paranoia, but so that we might come to grips with what we are and what we have done these two examined themselves. They became wounded by their sin. Their pride was destroyed. Their flesh was mortified. And each one turned to God. For as they saw themselves for what they were, they discerned God as He is. But until we come to grips with what we are, we cannot really come to grips with who and what God is. They did not resort to alibi. But I would point out to you, secondly, here is hope for the sinner. Here is hope for the sinner. In Isaiah 1.18, God is speaking. He says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
In Isaiah 6, 5 to 7, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the angels to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Here is hope for the sinner. Here is help for those who are interested. The problem is that most of us pervert God's gift of self-examination into the habit of examining our neighbor. Friends, that's always wrong. That is always wrong. Nobody answers to you. You know that I have never known anybody who was negative and critical and liked to criticize other people that enjoyed criticism. But I'll tell you a secret. I've never known a critical person who didn't get a lot of criticism because the Scriptures say be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. I have agonized with parents over the state of their children's lives, parents who cannot leave the church and go home before they begin to roast the Sunday school teacher, the music, the preacher, and everybody inside, and then they wonder why their kids don't like church. You sow it, friends, and you're going to reap it. It is never right to begin the process of examining others. God's gift is self-examination, not examining others. God's gift is confession, not confessing the sins of our neighbors. In Matthew 7, the first five verses, the Lord Jesus said this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with the measure you use on others, it shall be measured to you again. And when you behold the splinter in your brother's eye, why do you behold the splinter in your brother's eye and do not consider the log that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the splinter from your eye and behold, there's a log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first, Cast the log out of your own eye, and then maybe you can see clearly enough to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, folks, that's plain. And I want you to notice that sweet, meek, gentle, mild Jesus is the one that said that. God wants us to confess our sins, friends. He's not interested in hearing you confess your neighbor's sins. It is easy, it is easy to focus on other people and use their sin and their sinfulness as an excuse for the state of my own life. But in the final analysis, the sins of other people do not make you holy, nor do they make me holy. And when I stand before God, I will not stand on the basis of how I compare with anybody but Jesus Christ. And I will not be judged on the basis of anything but what I have done. You may know that when you began to assume the judgmental role 
You have ceased, as the apostle James said, the brother of our Lord, you have ceased to become a doer of the law and you have set yourself up as a judge of the law. And James says, God is the judge. God is the judge. You say, but I'm right. It doesn't matter whether you're right or not. It's just none of your business. In Romans chapter 14, Paul said, a man stands or falls to his own master. And Paul says, in plain and simple language, no exaggerations, who do you think you are to judge another man's servant? Can you imagine anything bolder than trying to usurp the throne of God and take away his function? Here is hope for the sinner, not in the confession of other people's sins, not in a negative critical spirit that will find something to complain about, no matter how good things are. But in self-examination, in confession. Do you remember what David did when Nathan told David the story? David jumped from his seat, livid with anger, because he thought somebody else was the sinner. Notice this. Our sins always look outrageous when we see them in other people's lives. Our sins always look outrageous when we see them in other people's lives. And friends, it is a fact that when you see something in somebody else that you absolutely cannot stand, it's because that's a part of your own life and you can't stand it in yourself. Secular psychology, without any benefit of the Bible, tells us that, but the Bible said it thousands of years ago. Then notice also that God sees and knows all of our sins anyway. The prodigal son illustrates that we can never have forgiveness and redemption until we face squarely our sin and our guilt. Nicodemus was a righteous man. Nicodemus was a good man, a man of good works. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. No one escapes his sin. One day the finger of Nathan will point in your face and it will say, you are the man. Will you, as David did, confess honestly to God and deal with personal sin and personal guilt and responsibility? Or will you dodge it as did Saul and wind up in self-destruction? As we read in Psalm 51, when a soul turns, God quickly forgives, saves, and satisfies each one of us must face for himself his own guilt. Only you can abhor your sin, forsake it, confess it, and commit yourself to God. But when you have come to him honestly to say, Lord, I have sinned. Lord, forgive me the way I've judged others. Forgive me the way I've looked around. Forgive me the way I've focused on other people. I have sinned and I am guilty. When you have done that, the hardest thing to say will have been said and you will be cleansed. We know that we will come again to sin. We will again someday try to alibi and justify ourselves by pointing at other people. 
that we will again be confronted and have to come to confess. But today, you can begin the process of cleansing and restoration. It is not a permanent thing. It is not like taking a vaccination. Every day there must be confession, acknowledgement of guilt. But today you can say it, I have sinned. And you can know blessed forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. Today I ask you to commit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For some of you that will mean that you need to be saved. You may even be religious. You would not be the first who has been a member of a church but has never known Jesus. You need to confess your sinfulness and receive from Him the blood that shall never lose its power, that blood which shall wash your robe whiter than snow. It may mean that you as a Christian need to confess your own personal responsibility to God and cease to focus with a negative and critical spirit on the lives of other people. You may be here today and you are a Christian. You live in this community. God wants you involved in this church. You will, as He demands, invest your life here by becoming a member of this church. Whatever you need to do, be saved. Come to give all that you have to Christ. Come simply to kneel and pray. Whatever God would have you do, you will want to do it right now and do it quickly so that you can know the cleansing and the forgiveness that He gives. Join me in prayer. Father, I come on behalf of this people today and I say to you that we have sinned. I confess to you that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And I confess to you that I am undone because I am a man of uncleanness who dwells in an unclean world. I say, Lord, bring from our lips true statements of confession to you. Take from our heart the filth and the ungodliness and the hurt and the sorrow and the past and the sin. Give us cleansing, restoration. Set our feet on the rock. Lord, may we take the step which is unavoidable, the step of personal accountability. Do with us as you please. We shall praise you for it. I thank you for what you're going to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.